around that time was like when I first started to have thoughts of suicide. So I remember sitting about, I was about 14, I think, sitting with a, a bottle of wine and some pills. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of The Depression Files. I want to start with a shout out to Alan Durantes. Alan is a new patron on my Patreon page. Thank you so much for your contribution, Alan. Really appreciate it. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of the Depression Files podcast. For over two and a half years, I've been creating and publishing this show every other Sunday. Of course, there is a cost to producing a podcast, from paying the podcast hosting site, to the equipment, to a significant amount of my own personal time. Because of this, I've decided to create a Patreon page and hope that you'll consider contributing so that I can continue the important work of allowing men to share their stories. Please check it out at patreon.com slash the depression files. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the depression files. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I'm very excited. Today we have with us James Withy. James is a former therapist. He's a mental health advocate, a public speaker, and an author. James, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's, it's great to be here. Thank you, Al. James, it is, uh, it's very special, actually, for me to connect with you. You know, we, I know we had gone back and forth on Twitter a couple of years ago, it's been now, and, and then you had reached out to me to, to offer to write a letter for your yeah. project and book, The Recovery Letters, and my letter, uh, I was lucky enough and privileged enough to have my letter uh, be a part of your book. So that was a, a fantastic experience for me, and I want to thank you for that, and it's just it's so awesome to have you on the phone, uh, on the line here to talk. Thank you. No, no, it's 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 my pleasure. It's it's you know, there's it's always such joy for me to, to kind of connect with people that have written letters in the book. You know, it's such a special thing, and you know, getting to talk to people and meet people who've written letters is just it's just wonderful. So no, this is great. And then uh, finally, I don't know if you remember this, but you actually, uh, my brother lives in the very same city as you in England in uh, Brighton. That's right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So my brother. So yeah. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm here in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Minnesota. But my brother has been living in Brighton for about 13 years now. So that's an extra, wow. extra nice connection that I've got with you. <laughs> it's lovely. He's just yeah. He'll be down the road somewhere, which is yeah, which is a nice feeling. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> So uh, I know you have described your depression as being essentially a part of your life since childhood. Um, mm. Looking back in hindsight, 
when do you think your depression really started? Yeah, it's really interesting, that one, because I, I, I can remember, you know, really far back, being really young, you know, I don't know, five, six, seven, and having that real intense sadness, you know, and and sort of sitting and, and just being aware of this massive, massive, massive sadness. And it kind of came and went, but, you know, I remember it very, very young. And then I think, you know, certainly my depression is exacerbated by circumstances and stuff, but I think it's also been very much a, a part of me, you know, ever, you know, when I was growing up, you know, it it's always felt like it's always been there. I've not always been able to put a name to it and a label to it. And, and it hasn't been until, you know, actually quite recently, really, that, that I've sort of gone... I am somebody who has depression and 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 and, and mental illness, um, but I remember it being with me, yeah, all my life, and and just not understanding it and not knowing what it was, and and kind of a sort of intense loneliness and sadness that that I didn't really understand what was what was going on. So many kids, it's so tough to articulate if it's not an adult who's kind of intervening and and noticing that it's it's something out of the norm because. For a five, six, seven, ten-year-old, you know, they and they may just believe that's how everybody is. Absolutely, you know, and, and I also think, you know, I, I, I guess I, I grew up. I was born in nineteen seventy-two, so growing up in the sort of seventies and eighties, and those those feelings weren't talked about, and mental illness was, you know, certainly in the UK was very much a kind of it was just about kind of people it was psychotic or had schizophrenia or, you know, it wasn't, and depression was around, but, you know, it was so different from the world that we live in today in terms of how we talk about it. And, you know, we've still got a long way to go, obviously, but, you know, there was no discussion at school about mental health or about mental illness. And, and to me, my own experience of that was relatives that were in a psychiatric hospital. And I, and I, you know, I felt really distant from that and scared about that really. Right. So, it wasn't something that I could, you know, articulate or or name or kind of even describe properly for many, many, many years. And then because there's such, you know, shame attached to it, you know, and, and I didn't want to be the person with mental illness, with mental health problems. I didn't want to be that person. You know, I didn't want to say, you know, I'm James and I have depression. And you know, even if I had the words, I didn't want to do that. So, you know. This it's it's a kind of coming out process, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, but I, yeah, it, it just it, you know the the structures weren't there, that the education wasn't there, you know, the stigma was was the big thing that was there, and that and that prevents you from, you know, talking obviously, but also prevents you from comprehending and accepting as well. Right, right. So I hear you saying as a kid, it was it manifested in extreme sadness and loneliness. Were you a kid who, who had very few friends in school or was school? Did you have happy times as a kid as well? I, I Yeah, it's an odd one. My, my, my dad died when I was five. So it's all kind of skewed. You know, oh. obviously there was this huge kind of sadness around that. Um, and I, I, I guess as a child, I always felt different. And I... I um, and some of that was about was about being gay and, and kind of not liking football, soccer and, and kind of not fitting in and all that kind of stuff. So there was quite a lot going on and then feeling different because my dad had died and then kind of feeling different because I had these sort of really intense feelings. And um, so, yeah, I, I 
I, I had friends, but I, I certainly wasn't, you know, the popular guy. I was kind of, you know, kind of a bit middle of the road and, you know, wasn't, wasn't massively academic and wasn't particularly anything really. And so I always felt a sense of being other for a kind of lots, lots of reasons. And so, yeah, that brings with it quite, quite, you know, quite a lonely, difficult experience. Yeah, my goodness. At age five, you lost your father. Was, I did. was that a sudden loss? Yeah, so he he died of meningitis. So he had been having some. Uh, he had like a kidney kidney disease, and then was in hospital and contracted meningitis, and um, oh died. Goodness. Yeah, Christmas Christmas Day, nineteen seventy seven. So yeah, suddenly I was you know I was out without my dad. My mom was had three kids. So my elder sister was uh, how old was she? So she was seven, and then my younger sister was just nine months. So suddenly my mom was there with three kids and yeah, it was a very extreme situation. You know, it's kind of, um, and I, and I had a lot of anger, you know, as a child and a lot of that was about, you know, the injustice of my dad dying. And, and so kind of, yeah, that's obviously a, you know, a kind of not a precursor to my depression, but kind of one of the reasons that my depression came out, you know, came to the surface. Yeah. Well, certainly a factor. Definitely a fact. Exactly. Definitely a factor. Yeah. So, yeah, it was um, and it was difficult and we didn't have a lot of money. And um, so, yeah, there was there was factors that kind of pushed depression, you know, to the forefront. And that's going to happen throughout my life, really, that it's it's always been there. It's always been around. And then certain factors have kind of pushed it forward and pushed it forward and pushed it forward. Right. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a tough childhood. Yeah, it was. Uh, I can't imagine losing your father at age five to something like that. And and you mentioned earlier just the stigma and nobody really talking about mental health. So I'm I'm guessing that the three kids, none of you had any kind of help around therapy or understanding what and how your dad died and being able to talk through that. And I I wonder if your mom did too, and how stressful on her losing her loved husband who is yeah. all of a sudden gone and she's trying to grieve while she's trying to support her three kids as a, a new Ab- single absolutely. mother. Yeah. I mean, unbelievable really. I, you know, I, and she, so yeah, there was, again, this is, you know, it was seventies and eighties. And so, yeah, there wasn't, you know, the charities that are sort of set up for children whose, you know, parents have died these days and the therapy and the, you know, um, even talking about it, you know, it was very much, um kind of you know people would say to me oh you're the man of the house now and that this kind of stuff and you have to be good for your mom and sort of loads of stuff that prohibited talking about feelings really you know so um and none of that was done to a sense of you know not caring it was it was kind of a it's just that's kind of how things were and and we now we know so much different now you know but it's just the structures weren't there there wasn't the sort of acknowledgement of the impact that you know, grief at that age can have on children and, and how to manage that. You know, there was just nothing, you know, nothing happened at all. Um, we just kind of carried on, you know. And even amongst yourself and at age five, I, I, I mean, I wonder your mom, maybe your mom tried to explain what it meant to, to die or, you know, it probably at, at that age, probably in the most basic of terms, right? Like your dad is gone and in heaven or something. 
Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. And, and, and to I, try I, to understand that as a five-year-old and you're like, yeah. you mentioned the anger, like, oh my goodness, of yeah. course you had to have been angry. And people, yeah. you know, talk about the grieving process and it's, it's different. It's on everybody's own timeline and it might, you know, sometimes it's not linear and so forth. But I would imagine as a five-year-old kid losing your father, there's got to be a, a uh-huh. anger has got to be a large part of that grieving process and and just yeah. such confusion complete confusion and, and and anger yes so i was angry for a long time at the nurses and the doctors who didn't you didn't keep him alive so my lot right. my anger was directed there and my mum, yeah my mum would say your dad's in heaven and i and and i i had a very christian sort of church of england upbringing and and i didn't really even at that age i didn't really sort of believe in the concept of heaven so it was kind of it was kind of quite odd and so I would say to my mum, oh, where should, where should I say my dad is? And she would say, you need to tell people he's gone to heaven. And I was, I remember thinking, I don't really believe that. You know, I don't really, I don't want to say that. That's embarrassing, you know. So she just tried to describe it through her faith, you know, which, you know, is absolutely understandable. But but I remember going, well, I'm not sure I believe that, you know. So it was, it was quite, uh, I, I didn't really have, you know, an understanding of what happened to him. And, and certainly my mum's version was that he was now in this place called heaven right. didn't really resonate with me. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was very confused. And, and I kept having to sort of tell people, you know, uh, school, you know, well, what happened to my dad and, or they would come around to play at my house and they would go, where's your dad? And, you know, and so it was, a and it's, it's a bit like, um, it's certainly a bit like coming out as gay and with mental health, you're, continually on a process of saying oh well actually I have depression you know actually you know I have been in hospital and and this is why and so on and so on um and that's you know that it's an exhausting process that and certainly wasn't exhausting as a child oh yeah I can't even imagine were your siblings pretty tight yeah absolutely so yeah I'm really close to both of them my 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 younger sister she was nine months so she has no memory of my dad um and my older sister and I you know, had to do a lot of care, really. We, we um, you know, my mum needed help, you know, so right. so we kind of, you know, she cooked, but we did a lot of cleaning and a lot of, you know, looking after my younger sister and changing nappies and all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, it, it what it did do is it made us very tight as a unit, so the four of us, so, because you kind of had to sort of progress together, really, because all the sort of the structure of parental structures were kind of obliterated. So, you know, it, it it became a very different kind of family unit. So, yeah, we're very close because of that, really. You know, an unfortunate, you know, way to do that. But, yeah, we're very close. Right. Well, that's awesome. I'd like to hear more about the the whole process of coming out as a a gay man. And was that something that you were dealing with feelings of as a young child, or was this a later-in-life piece? No, definitely as a young child. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult to sort of come up with ages, isn't it? But I think I remember sort of from, uh, I guess, pre-puberty, so sort of 11, 12, kind of, kind of high school age, beginning of high school, I suppose, um, that I started to realise that I was attracted to men rather than women. And um, and it wasn't, again, I, I, you know, it's quite a Christian family that, that I was in. So it wasn't it wasn't as if, you know, there were family members saying continually, oh, gay people are horrendous, but it was just a sort of accepted kind of, 
we're not really cool about this particularly. Right, right. Um, well, and so I would imagine maybe even described as a sin or no? Um, I don't know. It's interesting that. I think it was... I think it probably would have been described, had I asked, it would have been described as a sin, certainly with the church I went to. Uh-huh. I think it was almost just not really on the agenda. So the only thing that that we would talk about, my mum would talk about, would be, well, you know, will you have sex before you get married? And do you think you get married? And, you know, all those kind of questions. And, right. and at school, you know, exactly the same. So this was kind of, we had something in the UK here called Section 28, which is a a piece of legislation that stopped um, any discussion about about being gay or being trans or being uh, or being bi or etc. So so you know you didn't have so I didn't have any kind of sex education or any you know personal um, education about you know about being gay about having those feelings. So so and certainly here in the UK in the 70s and 80s there were there were really no kind of role models on TV or characters on TV that you could you could kind of relate to so it was it was very difficult so yeah I kind of sort of came out eventually about 18 and kind of pushed through really kind of um, knowing that I wanted to you know kind of kind of be true to myself and, and let people know and it was very difficult you know it was a very difficult process um, and you know but there have been many years from sort of yeah 12 13 to 18 of kind of grappling with that you know and kind of you know thinking oh I need to somehow get rid of these thoughts and I need to not you know this is wrong how I'm thinking because none of it was endorsed and there there wasn't any you know role models or anybody to talk to about those feelings and and certainly you know the last thing that you would do was would be to talk about that or tell people that you were gay at school you know that would be the end for you so um you know you just that's just you know you know that would have been you know you would have been attacked you know um so yeah it, it it was it became easier when I went to university and um I I I sort of you know left my hometown and and was at university and made you know friends and was in a I went to university in Liverpool so it was in a big city and it had some gay clubs and I was able to kind of you know explore that a bit more and then actually I spent a year in the states I spent a year in um uh, um SUNY Potsdam and in, in New York State um as part of my degree and and I joined an LGBT society there and so yeah so I guess during my late teens I kind of managed to get my head around it much more and and, you know but everything is so delayed you know so all those kind of you know you start sort of and then so in my 20s I was sort of acting like a teenager you know because everything is delayed and pushed down so so yeah I I mean I certainly had around that time was when I first started to have thoughts of suicide so I remember sitting about I was about 14 I think sitting with a, a bottle of wine and some pills and, you know, there were many things going on, but being gay was certainly one of them. Um, and so, but not correlating that as something that, that there was, you know, some healing that needed to happen or, or that I had, you know, an illness or sort of problems. It was just like, oh, I'm having these thoughts of suicide. But again, you know, told nobody, told nobody. And I had, you know, then continued to have thoughts of suicide at university. And But it, it, it gradually got easier. And when I got, I suppose, into my 20s and then, um, met my husband when I was 26, I think. So yeah, and then you know things got easier. But it, but it takes time, as as with anything that's been delayed or 
pushed down or not acknowledged like you know like mental health you know it's 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 a long process of you know acceptance and and you know fighting back all the negative thoughts and negative messages from you know society as well as yourself to to come to a, a place of acceptance with it right and that must have been so challenging too i think and i'm sure you're not the first man who who's gone through that but from age 13 to 18 well probably oh. 13 just kind of coming to terms and understanding it uh and yeah. and then realizing this isn't okay with the church and the types yeah. of feelings that may have given you about you as a person and trying to push those keep those feelings away even though they're a part of you and not being able to speak about any, I mean, it sounds like you yeah. weren't able to share with anybody at all until you were 18 in college. No, I, I mean, absolutely nobody, yeah. nobody at all, so, oh you know, goodness. which is kind of extraordinary. And, and, you know, the strange thing is that actually, you know, one of my best friends at school, uh, you know, he came out as gay sort of much later. So in his sort of 30s, um, so he was he was gay as well. But, you know, so his process was quite different. So actually there were people in my friendship group that were gay but but just also not able to to come out um you're talking about to, at, so. at, at like the junior high age or are you talking college age yeah so no at like junior uh, yeah junior high yeah really? so sort of between okay. yeah absolutely. that's really um, strange to think about right like you could be hanging out really? with other boys at middle school yep. age who are gay absolutely. and not understand it and you're both going through the exact same experience and imagine if it yep. was okay at that time to actually see a therapist, to actually talk about it, to actually have oh. conversations at school and be able to find out, hey, you're going oh. through the same stuff I'm going through. Like, how healthy Absolutely. that would have been for you. It, it would have been groundbreaking. You know, it would it would have been, you know, I would have had a kind of, you know, relatively parallel process to to other other people and other people going through puberty and adolescence and so on and actually what what happened is that that you know I didn't you know so we never read any LGBT books there was you know no discussion about you know it, it was never brought into the education curriculum it was never talked about in sort of personal and social education it was you know and the only sort of images were kind of very stereotypical older gay men camp men right, um, right. you know who were just being mocked, or you know, on, on soap operas or comedy programs, you know, right. and they were there as a as just to be derisive and be made fun of. And I, so I knew that they were attracted to men, but it was, you know, it was done in such a a brutal way and at an expense of themselves, you know, on television that there wasn't anything that I could relate to. So I mean, yeah, and that didn't come about till much much later, you know that. I guess I, I, I started through books, I suppose. So, you know, through reading Olmsted Morpin and Edmund White and other people, you know, like that. So reading reading novels about gay characters was one of my ways of kind of going, oh, okay, this is this is out there. This does exist. And and actually when I was when I was in the States for a year, you know, getting reading the village voice and and things becoming Oh, just much more public and much more, you know, me going, oh, there's there's loads of other people out here. This is this is incredible. But when I so I grew up in a kind of seaside town in in a very kind of rural part of part of southern England, and you know, there's there was nothing to indicate to me that being gay was okay. You know, there was just nothing there. There were no indicators from my peer group or my teachers or you know parents and family to say that this is okay. 
So, you know, when it's like, this isn't okay, then you, then you shut up, you know, and, yeah. and you try and go, oh, well, is there a way of, you know, so I remember like my mum had like a clothing catalogue and I remember kind of looking at, looking at the guys, you know, in like, you know, shorts and t-shirts and going, oh, that's a really attractive guy. But going, no, I mustn't, I mustn't think like that. I must try and look at the women and be attracted to the women. Right. You know? Oh my it's, goodness. And it's, it's extraordinary, you know, looking back at that but there's a you know there's a big parallel with mental health you know I was also looking at you know people with severe mental illness going oh well, that's 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 not me you know so right. having those those models and people around us um and speaking out from is so important you know it's just so important to us you know for young, for young people Absolutely. So in addition to the extreme sadness and all these things you were going with mm. and the loneliness uh, in middle school, high school, did you have other symptoms? Mm. Were you were you able to get up and out of bed all the time or were there days you were stuck in bed? Were there other pieces um, of your depression that showed up? Yeah, I think it probably came about through anxiety, actually. So I, I had a lot of anxiety. So particularly around in my primary school, so I'm, I'm not sure that, what you would, as would call it, elementary school, would you call that? Yep. Um, so uh, particularly around maths. So I was really, I was, I was kind of okay at other subjects. Maths I was really, really bad at, still really bad at. Um, and we used to have these horrendous tests, you know, maths tests every Friday. And it would just be horrendous, you know. And we were tested on our times tables or whatever it was. And I would have full-blown panic attacks around these maths tests. Really? Um, I, yeah, and also doing sports. Some sport would send me into big panic attacks. And I remember, you know, saying to my mum, I don't feel well. You know, I've, I've got a bad stomach and, 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 and staying at home because I didn't want to do these math tests. So I was, I don't know, seven maybe, something like that. So, yeah, really extreme, extreme anxiety about that. Can you share, uh, can you share with listeners what you mean when you say uh, a, a panic attack? Like, what does that describe yeah. that for us? So kind of kind of panic attacks for me are kind of a, a very, very, very physical. So so your heart racing very, very quickly and, and really a fear that you're gonna die, you know. So there's this kind of if 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 this thing happens, if I do this thing or whatever it is, um, I'm gonna die. It's 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 a, quite like a primeval um primitive kind of uh reaction to it. It's a kind of like we talk about fight and flight. Right. So it's like it's like that feeling, you know, in a stone age when you were running away from a tiger, you know, you're fleeing for your life. And it's very much connected to those those sort of primitive feelings we have. But yes, yeah, so we're feeling of increased heart rate and um, anxiety and sweating and um, going, well, why, why would I want to do this thing that is so scary to me? So disablingly scary. Right. So, yeah. And, and also the thought that that I'm never going to not feel like this, you know. Mm -hmm. So it had a similarity with depression from that point of view is that a kind of unbearable sort of existence for a while of sheer panic and sheer anxiety and and terror, really. And terror probably being the, the most accurate way of describing a panic yeah. attack. I think. And at, at that age, were you able to make the connection of this is happening because I have a math test that's worrying me or did you, or was that more of a subconscious process? Like the test was coming up, you had been studying for it and all of a sudden this panic attack came about. I, yeah, I think I could correlate the two actually. Yeah. I think I, I could go, I'm feeling like this because I don't want to do this math test, you know, right. and, 
and partly I didn't want to do the math test because there was our names would go on a chart on the on the wall of the classroom and with your times table so whatever one you could do so you were on like a ladder you know oh <laughs> and God, I was always like... I was always I know it's extraordinary now. I mean, yeah, just, like these days, yeah, I'm I'm a school administrator, and to hear that, like, right. oh my god, my stomach just like squeezed up super tight. Like, yeah, post everybody's scores and see little Johnny yeah. here at the bottom. Look at how long it takes uh, him to do it. <laughs> I know. I mean, it's kind of. I look back and go, it's so unbelievable that you do that. But that's what happened, you know. So we were yeah on this big ladder from you know one to twelve on your times tables, and obviously, and the test you would do the test on a friday and then they would get scored and then on the monday you would see where you are on this league table basically and obviously i was always at the bottom because i couldn't do maths so you know it was kind of public humiliation oh my goodness absolutely so so you know i can kind of go i can kind of go now well that was a really good reason why i didn't want to be you know do that maths test you know absolutely who wants to be publicly humiliated you know um and and obviously the teacher was going oh well it will help to you know It'll motivate you. School motivate you and all that. Oh, all that You're gonna go super fast now. You're just gonna be <laughs> such a better mathematician now that we've shamed you. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> all your friends. Exactly. Pretty you know, messed just, up. Just... It's more a lesson on uh, panic attacks, right? Like this is what can happen when people yeah. publicly shame children. Absolutely. Oh, I mean, just goodness. extraordinary. And things like that, you know, happened. You know, lots. You know, it would happen in sport as well. So we would get. You know, how far can you jump in the long jump and, you know, scored on how high you can jump over the high jump. And, you know, and it would be that kind of and I was really rubbish at that stuff. You know, right. I, you know, was not coordinated and I I didn't like yeah, I, I my body just wasn't, you know, it didn't work that way. And, um, you know, had it been about, you know, reading books and stuff, it would have been all right. You know, it would have been OK. But, you know, right. the scores were about maths and sport and I, I was really bad at that stuff. So it kind of certainly for sport you know it's that kind of you know the popular kids did sport and you know the popular kids were playing soccer and um and that's who the popular kids were and I you know I remember trying to uh in the in my back garden you know at home and kind of trying to get good at football you know trying you know kind of dribbling the ball hating every moment because I hated I hated it but trying to get some skills together so that I could get some friends you know right um and so yeah it's it's kind of you know these things are you know stay with you that stuff you know that that feeling of otherness and you know being out of the norm and in inverted commas and 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 feeling different and uh that stuff is 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 really powerful at that young age you know i can't imagine so tell us when when you got to college and you were finally yeah. able to explore being a gay man and and even share yeah. it and walk into a gay club in my mind yeah. i'm envisioning that as just being really liberating and and being able to show up as who you are. Um, was it that experience? And tell us about that. It, yes, no. Yeah. Because it, 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 I, I suppose I still didn't know kind of how to be a gay man. <laughs> I right, didn't, you know, right. I didn't, have any, I didn't have any lessons. So, you know, I, I would kind of get my, I didn't have any other gay friends at university. So I would kind of drag my, my like kind of housemates to, to a gay club and, and, you know, and, and, Parts of that were fantastic, you know. I kind of felt, oh, this is this is great because I'm kind of with other people that feel like I do. But also, I didn't really understand, you know, what to do and how you met guys and you know how that all worked. And and obviously, this is all pre mobile phone and internet, so you know, 
Um, so it was kind of, it was liberating but scary at the same time because obviously I had no, you know, lessons around gay sex or relationships. So I didn't know, I had no examples of, of, of a gay relationship. So I didn't know how to start off at doing that stuff. So all that comes. So at university, I would kind of go to, go to kind of gay, gay clubs and stuff and, and would feel a kind of comfort, um, but also a kind of, oh, I don't quite know what I'm doing here, <laughs> you know. So it was a bit of both. It was a bit of both. Um, I mean, you know, kind of clubs and stuff can be scary places at any age and any sexuality anyway. But yeah. certainly, yeah, it was a mixture of both, I would say. A mixture of, okay, I can see that there are other people like me. This is great. But also, oh, I don't really know what the rules are and how this works and, and, and how do you meet people and and what am I supposed to do here? Yeah, it's strange. It, it almost sounds like a little bit of a fish out of water. Like, here you are. Yeah. And... and and which could also be a little extra anxiety on yourself because you you may have had the assumption of walking in is going to feel great and liberating as I had described it. And then all of a sudden you're like, <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> I, well, I think it is. It was a kind of what do I do now? Because it's kind of like, you know, do I go up and talk to somebody? Do I do I dance? Do I what, what are the rules here? You know, I, I don't it's like I, I didn't know. You know, I'd been to kind of you know uh, kind of straight nightclubs before and you know and I guess I was less invested because it's like well I'm not going to meet anybody here so I would go along with my friends and dance and you know and drink but you know in a gay club it was you know there was much more kind of pressure really it's like because I wanted to meet you know I wanted to have a boyfriend and I wanted to meet somebody and um I didn't know how that how that worked so yeah it was it was liberating to be able to go to the two gay clubs and and I mean, and it was still so. This is let's think. What year is this? Nineteen ninety-one, uh, ninety-two. So it was still. They were kind of still underground. You know, they weren't. Right. You know, you would. They weren't hidden away, but certainly they were. They they weren't. You know, at the with the rest of the nightclubs, you would have to go down an alley and turn left and all that kind of stuff. And you know, it wasn't the kind of you know pride celebration that we have now you know there was still a feeling of i'm doing something other um so yeah they was it was liberating but it was also a bit scary because i had i had i didn't have the rule book i didn't know any other gay people i just showed up and it was like oh what do i do here you know that is really interesting how about your level of depression at this point where you're you're going out to clubs, you're trying to meet men yeah. and understand what it means to be a gay man yeah. who's out now. Um, yeah, what was the the mental health like? Do you know, it wasn't great actually. So it became my so my first year at university, so my freshman year was probably much worse, and I had periods of feeling suicidal and. Um, my mental health was pretty bad that first year. It got better once I had come out to friends and. I had a kind of um, a great close group of friends who are still who are still I'm still very very close to, and that so it kind of then got a bit better in the last few years and then but then when I left university my mental health got got massively worse and I and I I got an eating disorder and was was really ill so it kind of it, it was it was very much still around it became more manageable I had less periods of feeling suicidal in sort of the, the, the last three years of university, but then it really plunged down again and sort of 
manifested as, as an eating disorder. And um, and so, yeah, that was tough, really, because, you know, kind of being a guy with an eating disorder is a very, it's still kind of, you know, still now it, that's talked about much less. And, yeah, and, there, and there was and there was no, you know, there was no support. I was living in, I had moved to Scotland and to Edinburgh and, um, there, you know, I didn't go and see my doctor. I, I you know, I was just, you know, it was, I guess, a form of anorexia, really. I, I had got incredibly, incredibly, incredibly thin. So I'd lost a lot of weight and then had gone, oh, this is fantastic. I can control this. This is something that I can control, you know. And I carried on controlling it and controlling it and, and got very, very thin and very, very ill. So, yeah, so the depression and, and the kind of eating disorder were very much around at, at that point. Earlier, you mentioned that... Uh there was oftentimes a trigger that would bring on your depression. And was there yeah. a trigger after college that created uh, this eating disorder and a, a downturn in your mental health? Yeah. So I had, I had a friend, a friend that I'd met in the States actually, and, and she had come back to the UK as, as like an exchange trip and she died. And um, she, she died in my final year of university and also died of meningitis, like oh, my dad. My goodness. So, so there was this kind of, there was this sort of double whammy of, of obviously grieving, grieving, you know, for her death. Um, but also she died of the same disease that my dad did. So, yeah, that was the big, big trigger, I think. Um, and that's when, you know, my mental health popped up again to say hello, you know. It's like, oh, this is how we're going to manage this. Um, wow. So, yeah, it, it was it was a, obviously a trigger for the death of my dad, but also, a, you know, a loss in itself and and happened, you know, right before my kind of final exams, really, um, in my final year. It was really, really hard. And, and she was, when I had spent a year in the States, she was, she was one of my best friends. So it was, um, you know, and I'd gone to her house and we were very close. And... Um, so yeah, that was that was the trigger. That was the trigger for that one. And I also think that in combination with suddenly I was away from my group of friends. I had met this fantastic group of friends, and suddenly we were then dissipated, spread out throughout the country, doing different things. And I didn't have that social support, so I was kind of grieving for my friend, and also didn't have a group of friends. My the group of friends that I'd had for the last sort of four years around me. So it was, and then kind of going what am I doing? I've just left university and I don't know what I'm doing. And I, I started to train as a therapist. Um, but it was, it was hard because I was kind of, I was in a, you know, a, another new city and didn't know anybody. And, you know, it was, it was really tough. And, and the eating disorder was a way of, you know, getting control over, you know, what was out of control in my life. And so, yeah, that was, that was the trigger for that one. Yeah. Did you go back to your hometown after college or how did you decide where to, to go? Or was it based on a job? Yeah. It was based, yeah. It was like it was like a course, basically. So, so yeah, I I decided that I I wanted to to train as a therapist, and um, there weren't many courses around really at that point. Um, but there was a course in like a sort of an introduction to counselling in in Edinburgh. So, I decided to. Most of my friends had gone on to London actually, um, and I decided I'm not really not sure why, but I think I'll just go to the other end of the country, and I'll. I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> I mean, it's kind of, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but I, you know, I felt that this is what I wanted to do. So I, yeah, so I spent the next uh, couple of years after university, uh, so I spent a year, sort of an introductory course, and then did a kind of a full-time person-centered course in the move to Glasgow and did, and did a full-time course there. Um, so yeah, it was, it was kind of having to start again and 
making friends again and, and being in a new city and, and, you know, and then also then kind of exploring, you know, what being gay men in a different city and all that kind of stuff. Right. So, yeah. And, and I, I kind of managed to get control of the eating disorder. My sister helped a lot. Who's who trained as a biologist and she would talk me through the science of eating really is, is what helped me. And she said, look, you know, this is the amount of calories you need. And, you know, this is why you're losing weight. And, and I gradually, very gradually managed to get control over it, but very much kind of by myself. I didn't, I didn't have any help for that. And again, that just seems just, just ridiculous. You know, thinking back going, I don't know how I managed to wrestle control about over that, you know, cause I was, I was very, very underweight and, um, very ill and, and still have some, you know, medical complications because of, of being so, so thin. And so, yeah, it was, it, and, you know, whereas now, again, you would just look up online, you could go on the internet and look up stuff and you would get, you know, thousands and thousands of pages about, you know, eating disorders and, and, and men with eating disorders. And whereas, you know, eating disorders were known about, they were, you know, certainly with men, they weren't, they weren't really discussed at all. Right. And, um, you know, so I, I, I did nothing. I did nothing. Wow. You know, I, there's a, a couple of things I want to mention. One is you mentioned leaving your friends back at college and how yeah. that was difficult for you. And I, for, I don't know if this is the case or not, but it seems like it would be even more traumatic for you leaving that group of friends than, than a yeah. typical person leaving a group of friends. I mean, you, because they must've been such a huge support for you as you were coming out as a gay man, they obviously yeah. supported you or you wouldn't be calling them friends and supported Absolutely. you through this important and very important kind of transitional years of your yeah. life. And then all of a sudden they're gone. Oh, absolutely. You know, they were, you know, they, you know, I talked to them, you know, about being gay and, I, and they came, they supported me. You know, they, they were my cheerleaders, you know, they came to the gay clubs with me and they, you know, were just this fantastic support system. And, um, you know, they were my family, you know, and they know, they knew more about me as a gay man than my family did at that point. You know, so, so yeah, it was a huge loss, you know, suddenly having this found this kind of fantastic group of people that I felt really comfortable with and that were that were fine with me that liked me too and then suddenly they were gone you know yeah. so yeah you know there's you know there's so many types different types of grief aren't there you know um not just the physical loss of somebody right, and, right. And, and and it was def it was definitely a, a type of grief which yeah. was that that you know I was in Edinburgh and most of them were in London and you know which is which you know it, Distance-wise, in, in, in with you in the states isn't that much, but here in the UK, you know, because we're smaller, distances right. are kind of, of a different kind of, you know, Edinburgh to London is, is a long is a long is a long distance here. Yeah, right, um, right. So yeah, it was it was really hard. It was really difficult. They they were there and then they were gone. So no, I spent the summer back back at home and then and then kind of, you know, and then so spent yeah maybe a couple of months um, back home and then and then went away again. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting to me, too, how you were able to get through your eating disorder with the help of your sister, which is awesome. You had already mentioned uh -huh. you guys were tight. But it's interesting, yeah. like, it sounds like it was more the biological or physiological information she was feeding you that, that yeah. really helped you. Whereas, you know, here, and I'm sure it's in England, it's, it's known that an eating disorder is really a mental health disorder, a mental health illness. Mm. And oh. it doesn't seem like, and maybe there was more to it, but did she talk at all about the mental health piece of, of, you know, like you described, this was a piece that you could control in your life. And, and yeah, yeah. Did she... No, she didn't. 
No, she didn't. No, it was. It's, and it fascinates me this because, you, you know, I've had relatives that have had eating disorders subsequent to me, and and you know that that support element and that therapeutic element, you know, not just the science is just so crucial. Um, but actually, yeah, at that point, I I think it was because I couldn't work out when why I was feeling so ill, right, and why I had no energy and. Um, and I was doing some, uh, like a care or like a, in a, in a um, uh, care of the elderly wards in a hospital for, for where there were older people there. And I was kind of running around and doing, you know, helping the patients and stuff. And I couldn't work out why I would get so tired and why I didn't have any energy. And and then I had I had a conversation with my sister around, you know, how thin I was. And, and, and she was going, look, James, you need this amount of calories to feel okay. And I and, and I remember, like the other nurses, we were kind of fooling around with you know blood test kits, and they took my my blood sugar levels, and it was just so incredibly low. And I went and um, had a meal and lunch. I had lunch in the canteen, and had like um, macaroni and cheese, mac and cheese, and and the impact on my energy levels and well being was so extraordinary <laughs> that I think that kind of message of oh my goodness look at what you're doing to yourself you know right. so it, it was yeah it was pretty much a kind of scientific way of way of managing it um and i think i knew that it was a way of control and it was a way of managing you know the death of my friend and the connotations the, the, the connections that I had with my dad but yeah once i'd had evidence i suppose which my sister had prompted me to do of going yeah, I can't remember how many calories I was eating. Very, very few. I would barely eat anything. And suddenly I had, you know, mac and cheese and and felt so much better. And so that correlation in my mind of going, oh, okay, so this is why you haven't got energy. This is why you're, you know, you, you, you know you're not sleeping properly and so on and so on. That kind of made a link in my head. Now, had I had some therapy alongside of that, that process would have happened much, much, much quicker, you right, know. Right, right. Uh, but, it, but, I, but, it, but it wasn't there and I didn't, I, I think even if I had tried to access it, there wasn't anything there. So it was a kind of, yeah, it was a kind of a lesson in calories and a lesson in, you know, how my body worked. And after that, it just gradually became a bit, you know, it wasn't a kind of, you know, sudden overnight cure, but something clicked in my head about, you know, the link between feeling better and a food and actually what I was doing was, just massively damaging myself through food yeah. so yeah it was it, it, it's you know eating disorders are, are just you know are just so dangerous you know so incredibly dangerous we, you know, we know that the death rate of eating disorders is really high so I, I knew that um, but I didn't know that at that point what I knew was that I felt great because I was able to control something right you know this was this was great because I there was all these things that were out of my control, you know, being gay and not having a dad and dad, you know, kind of mental health. And but actually, what I could do was that I could very successfully control what I ate, and I could, you know, I have quite a lot of willpower, I guess, sometimes. And so it really worked for me because I could go, you know, I'm not going to have that chocolate cake. I'm not. I'm. I'm going to restrict. I'm. Not, and and that, you know, made me feel really good. Right. So it wasn't until I had you know, eating this mac and cheese and realized that that actually I was feeling so bad because of lack of calories. And that that link suddenly 
started to kind of help the healing process. You may be one of the few people in this world who can say mac and cheese saved your life. <laughs> oh, I, should, I need to have that somewhere. That's going on my Twitter bio, I think. That is, that is funny. Um, and at this point, you still had no diagnosis ever at all uh, around any no. of your mental health? No, nothing at all. No, absolutely nothing. I, I had gone for, after my friend died, my mum got me an appointment with a, with a therapist, like one, one session appointment is all she could get from me. And she pushed and pushed and pushed the doctor's surgery to, to, for me to have a session. And she really pushed hard because she knew that she knew obviously that the connection with my dad's death and my friend's death was so close. And she pushed for me to have this, this one session. So I had this one session with the therapist who, you know, he really wasn't very pleased to see me because, you know, she didn't, um, my mum had been, you know, rightfully very pushy going, my son needs some support. So I had one session, no, yeah, no diagnosis. Cause I, you know, I never went to the doctor. I, you know, it never felt like something that I could go to the doctor about. And, and I don't think it, I don't think it's, you know, my sort of last period of, of severe depression has been in the last 10 years is when it got significantly worse. And I don't think it's really until, you know, a good 10 years ago that I kind of went, I am somebody with a mental illness, you know, that I allowed myself to say, oh, you know, I am somebody with depression. It, it, I just never allowed myself to have that label or to, or to think in those terms. So it never occurred to me to go and see a doctor because it's like, like I, you know, it just didn't enter my head. Right. So no, you know, doctors were just for physical things. You know, it's right, like right. It, there was no link there. So I, I never, I never went to a doctor. Never got a diagnosis. Um, no, nothing, nothing happens at all. And, and when you say uh, you're, you had a really bad stint of depression ten years ago. That is yeah. after the one dealing with the eating disorder. Yeah, so so okay. so I was about twenty twenty one when I had my eating disorder, and then so round about I'm or my I'm forty seven now, so about yeah about ten years ago, and then so between sort of twenty one and and sort of ten years ago, you know my mental health was up and down. So I I went for some counselling, and but it wasn't um, it was kind of manageable. So I managed to hold down a full-time job so I, I worked as a counselor for some time and I worked in addictions and um, I worked as a trainer in social care for a long time and so for a good you know 20 years or so my mental health wasn't great but it wasn't it's sort of a crisis point I it was manageable it sounds like it was man exactly how yeah. yeah it was manageable you know I had some therapy and you know um would experience some symptoms but it was it was it was manageable absolutely it was manageable and it only yeah really got massively worse about 10 years ago so yeah I was kind of able to live with it um and because yeah I was so I would get anxiety and panic attacks and and periods of depression but again never would say to myself oh you're somebody that has depression or you're somebody who has mental health issues and again, you know, not to, still not being talked about a lot, you know, mental health still not being talked about very much. And so even if I had managed to say, well, you, you know, you've had these problems. So, it, I mean, it seems extraordinary to me now looking back, you know, of kind of, you know, periods of feeling suicidal and, and um, eating disorders that I still didn't think of myself as somebody who had a mental illness, you know. Right. Um, or needing to see a doctor. Yeah, or even to see, exactly, right, or right. even to see a doctor. But I think, you know, that, that, that's about, 
that's about stigma and shame you know is what that's about and it's about education and it's about if you have you know society telling you that something is wrong and then you shouldn't have it and you and, you know and not talking about it or all the examples that you have are ones you can't relate to then again a bit like being gay you're not going to explore that side of you you want to push it down and not right. accept it. so so I kind of carried on and, and um you know and I you know had periods of being angry and periods of anxiety and periods of depression but not severe enough to to kind of warrant anything else really until until a good 10 years ago yeah and, and the therapy you were getting at that point was good you you felt like that was useful yeah really useful yeah it was really good so I did you know I did a lot of processing around you know the death of my dad you know I mean that that's kind of an ongoing thing but I talked a lot about that and I talked a lot about yeah control and and um you know and kind of from five knowing that really you know the world was a kind of a scary place and and and, and bad things could happen um and so yeah I talked a lot about about grief and control and my eating disorder and uh and anxiety and yeah and 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 had a great therapist who who was very 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 good and I kind of went in and out of different therapists but I had a particular one that really I think kept me able to you know I was then able to kind of manage to keep working and, and kept my mental health on a kind of fairly even even uh even platform really I guess which was looking back is um is great you know I, I kind of underestimated the 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 impact that he had really uh-huh. was that the only strategy you were using to manage your mental health at that point was there any medication or were you trying to no. be cautious about your diet or exercise no no I wasn't no no the opposite I think actually okay. so I think yeah, I was kind of drinking a lot and smoking and yeah no not at all so um so no no medication so no still hadn't been to the doctor or you know um that wasn't that wasn't you know or you know even on my radar at all so no I was living a pretty unhealthy life really uh-huh. and eventually stopped smoking and, and 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 cut down on my drinking and then as you get older you know you can't drink as much and your body kind of starts to go oh you know you have to slow down take us to the uh, to 10 years ago and and what the trigger was and how yeah. that, that manifested yeah, so so we had so we were living we were living in Scotland and then we kind of decided that we wanted to uh, move to the south coast. So my mum lives on the south coast, as did my sister, and my other sister wasn't too far away. And uh, living in Scotland was it was kind of too far away from them. And my mum was getting older, and you know was by herself, and I was you know wanted to be near them really. So we had lived there for a long time, and and then so yeah, made this massive move. Um, this is you and your husband right this is yeah me and my husband yeah and so we moved down here and um yeah which was really which was you know it it has been a great move but you know it was very difficult so you know I was moving away from my friends and having to kind of start again and even though I knew it was the right thing to do it was a very big move and then yeah so we had we sold our flat in, in Glasgow and um, moved here and my husband had got a job um, but then about three months after he started his job he got made redundant and I hadn't got a job yet so he went to had the only work that he could find was in Dublin and in Ireland so he moved over to Ireland and lived there for a few years and would come back every couple of weeks 
And then I was struggling to, to find work. And then I got a job sort of doing some temporary teaching in a, um, in, here in England, we call it a sixth form college. So it would be for sort of 16 to 18 year olds. And I was teaching sort of social care and health. And the big trigger was that I, one day I was, uh, I was teaching a, a class, like a different class, as a, as a favor to an, another teacher. And had got into an altercation with a with, with a with a woman, a girl. She was she was sixteen, and um, she had had her mobile phone on. And there were kind of you know obviously kind of rules about turning your mobile phone off. And I said to her, "Oh, you know, the class has started. You need to turn your phone off." And we got into this kind of argument, really, of me going, "You need to turn your phone off," and she was going, "I'm not going to turn it off." And you know, and, and I had to give her a warning. And, and it was a kind of this very difficult. I didn't know her, and it's a very difficult kind of altercation. And I kind of thought of it as, oh, okay, this is just a kind of not a very nice, you know, um, you know, situation that's happened. But then what happened a few days later is that she started accusing me of, of that I had sexually assaulted her, and it was just an extraordinary. I, 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 something in me kind of, you know, almost died at that point. You know, it was just the most extraordinary process of being accused of, of something that I hadn't done oh, and um and that was that was the huge trigger so I mean there was other things going on you know there was trying to find work and my husband being away and being in a new city and all that kind of stuff but this our false accusation um was the big 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 trigger for kind of um the sort of period of depression that I'm still in really to be honest and, and um, did it create a, a large effects after that was there an investigation and and all of these yeah. procedures that yeah. had to take place yeah there was there was an investigation and and it kind of you know it was proved to be wrong but but you know i got very little support from the from the college that i was working for and it was kind of it was kind of brushed under the carpet really and um what should have happened you know is that she should have been expelled and excluded from the college and all the kind of processes that should have happened didn't happen so she wasn't excluded and you know, there was really no, nothing happened to her, you know, she carried on, she was a very bright student, and they wanted her to carry on. And um, they kind of said, Oh, James, you need to just forget about this. This doesn't happen very often. You just need to forget about this. And I was kind of like, I can't forget about this. You know, this is, you know, this is really serious. She's accused me of something that I haven't done. And you know, this is, this is having a huge impact on me. And um, it, 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 it was kind of, you know, the last straw really it was you know so after that I left that college I left that job obviously I couldn't stay in that role and I wasn't enjoying it anyway and then had had this accusation and um, wasn't getting support that I needed and wasn't enjoying the job and and you know didn't know what this girl would do next you know it's like well, is she going to keep accusing me what's going to happen right. so I I was exonerated but in a quite a quite a quiet way it was kind of like yeah we know you didn't do this you know but there was no acknowledgement of how serious it was for me or how serious you know it was for her to to you know accuse somebody of that um so yeah so at that point very quickly i my sleep got interrupted so i i would wake up i would only have maybe about four hours sleep and i would wake up um suddenly my sleep patterns were just just horrendous um, and I'd, I'd got into a new job and this new job was horrendous as well. And, you know, I'd been in, you know, all the jobs I'd had previously, I'd really liked and, um, you know, had done well and were really working out. And suddenly I had these series of jobs that had been really awful. And, um, so for about six months, what happened was, yeah, my sleep was just really, really awful. 
um, and I was trying to kind of process this accusation and um, was telling people about it and then was just kind of so nervous in case people thought it was true and you know it was just it was just awful um, and then I, I one particular day I was in this new job which I which I hated and was on the train home and just had the sense of going I can't do this anymore I'm, I'm, I'm going to kill myself this is this is what I'm going to do and then you know things started to tumble from that point really so yeah it, it, the the accusation was is probably still the biggest trigger for you know this current period of of depression and um something that i'm still sort of working through in in therapy about about that because it was such a huge thing to happen to me yeah and, and like you said this was 10 years ago and it's still impacting yeah. you yeah definitely I, I think partly because there was no um i never got an opportunity to say to how to her how angry i was and and, and there was no consequences for her and um it's it sort of, I, I guess I'd spent a lot of my life, I have always spent my life kind of championing justice, and that's a bit crudely put, but, you know, I'd worked with, you know, people who use drugs or um, LGBT people or people whose rights were kind of pushed down, and I was always kind of, um, you know, working for justice, really, and this felt like such an injustice to me, and it also felt like, you know, so many women are, sexually assaulted you know and i felt really cross that she was using that you know um to to attack me when you know there were so many women that don't get justice when this does happen to them right, right. so there were, there were many the many things that were kind of going on really but i think yeah the, the sense of lack of consequence for, um nothing happened to her i wasn't able to express to her you know what she'd done to me and still haven't really been able to do that so yeah, that one kind of rumbles on, you know, and it, it's it's in a it's in a much better place than it was. But it's um, it's a hard thing to get your mind around, really. It, somehow it, it, that accusation kind of got into me, you know, and I felt that um, I had been crushed, really. And all the consequences really were really awful for me. My mental health took such a nosedive, you know. So, you know, multiple suicide attempts and um, periods in hospital and, you know, it, 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 it was at the most serious that it had ever been, you know. In these past 10 years, you've been in a psychiatric mm. hospital. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I... Inpatient? Uh, and in, as an inpatient, yeah. So I was an inpatient. So I was with what we call here, we were a sort of community crisis team. So if you're in a mental health crisis, you there are different options really... One option is that you get daily visits. So that happened for a while that I would get daily visits and, you know, a, kind of, a couple of people from a, the mental health and psychiatric team would come and check on you and ask how you were and see, you know, how you were doing. At your um, home? At your home, yeah. Well, that's a your, nice option. Yeah, which is a great option because, you know, certainly here, psychiatric hospitals are not places where you want to go. They are, you know, scary places. And... So, yeah, that happened for many, many months. And then I went to stay in a, uh, a charity called Maytree, which is a place in London, and it's called a sanctuary for the suicidal. And I had heard about this because I had, um, you know, ironically enough, I'd been doing suicide prevention training in my job. So the extraordinary thing was that I, I had, so I'd heard about this place um, and knew it was in London and, and phoned them up and said, oh, you know, I really think I need to come. 
and it, it's an extraordinary place. It's kind of, it's almost like a dreamlike place of how you should treat people with mental health conditions, you know. So it was caring and compassionate and comfortable and was just filled with people who would talk openly about mental health and mental illness and suicide and you could stay for uh three nights four nights um and you would have intensive therapy and you would be able to talk and i talked a lot about the accusations so i talked a lot about you know the impact that it had and then after that uh a few months later i things got really bad again and yeah i had gone to the accident and emergency department in hospital because i knew i was ill i knew how bad things were um and yeah i had um then it being clear that i needed to go into hospital so yeah i was in hospital psychiatric for two weeks which was a kind of necessary but terrifying experience and and certainly not one that gave me any sense of healing <laughs> you know it was it was pretty terrifying and I kept my room and and it kept me alive. It could stop me from killing myself, really. It's what it did. Um, but it did, it did very little else. Um, right. So, yeah, I was there for a couple of weeks. And was that uh, essentially the purpose of that two weeks or was it was it supposed to also be rehabilitating you or was it yeah. primarily just to make sure that you weren't going to kill yourself for those two weeks? I, I think there was there was supposed to be kind of. Um, a rehabilitation process going on but it never happened so it, it was such a uh, I don't know how to describe it really so everybody was was so busy all the time and there was no you know money or funding or you know to have any kind of therapeutic input so you know what would happen is that I would stay in my room and um, that would be about it I would wasn't offered any kind of you know therapy or talking sessions you know I would get my medication reviewed and that would be about it and I remember one night you know really needing help and saying to the saying to the nurse look I really need to talk to somebody and she said yeah we're really busy but we'll, we'll you know we'll, we'll make time and she never came oh my goodness which is extraordinary which is the one thing I really remember is not having that support when I really needed it oh that sounds just awful it was it was yeah it was just i look back and and think well i was you know i was there i was in my room and i was safe because i wasn't able to leave and you know um so i wasn't able to kill myself but nothing else (laughs) was of any good you know um it's awesome that you were able to know you needed the help and to go there on your own because, I mean, you just finished telling us so many stories about how you never even thought of a doctor or thought you needed yeah. help. So to be able to take that, I mean, that takes a lot of courage. I know what that takes to, mm-hmm. to be able to do that. It, yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I'd learned, I think, from doing all the work around in, in addictions and, and training and uh, what I had learned, you know, from, you know, the age of sort of 38, 37 was that I was I was unwell, you know, and I knew I had to push for help. So it's it's still really hard in this country. There's there's very little parity between physical and mental health here, and it's still a big fight, you know, really to get the same quality of care that you would do with physical health. But I knew that I had to push. I had to, I knew I was unwell, and I knew I had to push. And 
you know, and I really did have to push, you know, I had a couple of visits to accident emergency. And then, you know, the first time I was sent away with some, you know, some Valium and told to see my doctor. And, you know, the next day I went to my doctor and said, I'm feeling suicidal. This is really serious. And I remember this so clearly that he raised his eyes to heaven and tutted <laughs> really? because I had, I had inconvenienced his day out, you know. Oh, my um, goodness. And it's those kind of experience that, that, you know, I am not alone with these kind of, you know, mental health experiences. You know, things have changed in 10 years, um, but we've got a long way to go. But certainly 10 years ago, you know, so I was seen as a nuisance, you know, and I was saying to him going, look, this is me. I am not well and I'm feeling actively suicidal. But, you know, it was the lack of compassion, the lack of care and the lack of understanding was extraordinary and and i you know i have so many examples of this you know um being in an accident emergency with the you sort of got saw a doctor first before you and then you waited for like eight hours before you saw somebody from the psychiatric team and i i was with this one doctor first um and she wouldn't look me in the eye it was extraordinary so i would say i'm not well i know i'm not well i'm feeling really suicidal and she wouldn't look me in the eye. So she would look everywhere else apart from at me. And it was an extraordinary, another extraordinary example of feeling other and feeling, you know, that, that there was something wrong with me and um, and feeling alien, you know. And uh, and that's, you know, again, that's the impact of, of shame and stigma, you know, that, that, that she couldn't she couldn't look somebody else in the eye with severe mental mental illness who was you know and what i wanted her to say was i'm so sorry you're in so much pain you know that's that's what i wanted um and unfortunately you know i've had some great examples of psychiatric care but also some really bad examples and and you know i'm certainly i bang on a lot about the importance of of hope and the importance of compassion and and, and when we're not met with compassion around our mental health it has such a huge impact because our illnesses are telling us that we're a worthless person anyway. So then, it, then that's if that's compacted with somebody else backing that up, then then it's huge. You know, the damage is, is absolutely massive. Incredibly, you're right. And then we just run with those negative feelings too when we're exactly. in the midst of depression. Um, exactly. So how about since that stay in the hospital have and I know you said you're still in a period of depression. The, so it seems like it's been, I mean, like 10 years. And is yeah. this where it comes and goes in waves? Or how would you describe those 10 years saying you've lived for 10 years with depression now? It's come and go. It comes and exactly. It comes and goes in waves. And I have periods where I'm kind of okay, you know, and I, you know, I, I am very different to the person that I was, you know, 10 years ago, so I, I, I work part-time now, and I work in a library, I have a very different job, which is much less stress, um, and I just do things very differently. Um, but I, I have, yeah, I have ongoing counselling, so I, I'm pretty much always in, in therapy of some sort. I see a psychiatrist, kind of probably, yeah, you know, averages out about every few weeks, and who sort of checks on my medication. Um, and I do, you know, and I also have very acute periods where, um, things are pretty bad, you know, so probably the last one was January of this year where I w was in a psychiatric hospital sort of 24 hours and then got out of there pretty quickly because I remembered how bad it was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I have, 
you know, days that go up and down. And then there are every few months it dips down massively. And I have to, yeah, draw on a lot of resources to sort of get through those periods, you know. Um, so, yeah, it, it's 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 been a process of accepting that, uh, you know, I, many years, you know, at the beginning of this um, particular period, I would you know, say to myself, I'm going to get rid of depression. You know, it's like, I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to get rid of it. And I'm going to do everything to try and get rid of it. So, you know, I tried loads of different medications and I would, you know, do gardening and running and you know, cycling and all this kind of stuff going. And I looked on it as something that I had to get rid of, you know. And then after years of going, that not working, you know, realizing that this wasn't something that was going to go. This is something that was going to stay with me and I was going to have to live with and manage in some form um and that's that kind of acceptance helped a lot because it stopped a lot of the kind of um i suppose the the sort of uh me being hard on myself because depression hadn't gone you know right right so it sounds like you've come to terms with the fact that this is going to be ongoing i'm i know it's going to happen i'm going to manage it i'm going to get through it and there will be good days to come and uh do you you still have periods of feeling suicidal? I do, yeah. I do, absolutely, I do. Yeah, I do. And also, it's a it's a kind of process of accepting that those suicidal thoughts aren't, aren't going to go either. You know, so. Yeah. Um, and, and it sounds like more than just passive thoughts. I mean, sometimes you have been yeah. active, and uh, and created plans. And do you, so? Do you uh, you and or your husband have a safety plan in place for you if you get to that point again? Yeah. So we do. We do. Yeah. Because I, I I've had a few attempts over the years. No serious attempts. You know, the 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 serious attempts were probably you know a good sort of nine ten years ago. But yeah. So we have like a scoring system of of how I am. So really he'll check in on me every day and go, well, what, what score are you today? And if it's getting up towards a seven or eight or a nine or a 10, so at seven, you know, we kind of think, okay, what do I need to do? And sort of once we're up at eight and nine, things are pretty serious and um, action needs to be taken at that point, really. So, yeah, uh, I have a plan of action, really. You know, it's, and it's not always, it's not always seeking help because one of the things that, it's difficult, I think, with mental health is the so when I last when I was last sort of suicidal, um I I was in hospital yeah, I was saying I was in hospital for twenty four hours and um and I left. I said I'm I'm going to leave and um the police were called on me. So because they were still concerned about me, which was really, really, really traumatic. So I I, I got home and suddenly the police were on my doorstep. So it, it's it's a difficult thing seeking help with mental health. So what I do is I have certain helplines or certain resources that I use that are safe to me and that I know work. And that includes, you know, reading and that includes, you know, watching certain programs or or doing some exercise or, you know, I know the sort of ways I need to do to get through it. And sometimes that is simply going to sleep and waiting until it goes, you know, and I'll just try different things. So I know that the suicidal thoughts are just going to be with me you know they are such a an integral part of my kind of depression and accepting that they're going to come and be there rather than going oh I can't believe that you know here I am again feeling suicidal it's it's become yeah something that is horrendous you know it's horrendous you know as you'll know 
and your listeners will know about how painful that is when you're feeling like that. But I have various mechanisms of saying you're going to, you know, you've got through this before and I'll write things down and I'll put stuff on my phone and I'll do reminders for myself and I'll watch things and I'll read things and I'll, you know, try and get the the 1% of light, you know, to shine brighter, you know, because because yeah. the rest because the rest of me is going, you know, this this is no good. It's interesting you you mentioned like the term you used was my kind of depression. And I do, I feel like <laughs> yeah. there are different types of depression. I mean, for me, yeah, yeah. I consider myself very lucky. I mean, I was in a very deep, dark place that I would never want my, I would never wish upon my worst enemy. And mm. it happened to me twice. But other than those two bouts and the last yeah. one being 2013, I haven't experienced depression at all. Uh, I am still on a medication. I still go to a support group, so I still manage it. But I haven't. Yeah, yeah. But I haven't really, you know, had had depression. I would say any kind of symptoms of it since 2013. And then I meet others yeah. like you, where it's it can be a daily battle for some people, right? Or the ongoing suicidal thoughts, and and you're getting therapy, and you're on medicine and medications, mm. and you're doing everything right, yet mm. you still have yep. these suicidal thoughts. And sometimes I I start to wonder. Like, I know there are certain types of depression m- the medical field talks about, like dysthymia, the, the ongoing mm. chronic yeah. depression, sometimes described as low grade unless you have it. People are like, no, mm. no, no. <laughs> um, but there's that. Or, or there are people who have sad seasonal affective disorder and they know every winter or every time the season comes yeah. around, it's going to happen. But I really I wonder if there are even more different types of depression. I, I feel like the research were so we have so far to go in it and it's so sad, you know, to take a, to take a pill and wait like four to six weeks to see if it helps you at all or not. (laughs) And then, and then be like, okay, I guess it didn't. Let's try another (laughs) one. And that's so in, on one hand, it boggles my mind that we're so seem so far behind with all of the advances we've seen in the medical field. On the other hand, I I get it. Like we're talking the brain, Uh, (laughs) like, this I know. is a complex organ. Yeah, I, I feel exactly the same. You know, I, I, you know, often I feel that we're in some kind of medieval times in terms of mental health where we're just, we don't know what we're doing, you know, and we're just, you know. So I heard an interview once about, you know, antidepressants and, and, and this guy was saying, look, in terms of antidepressants, what we're doing basically is if you have a broken car and you're just liberally spilling oil all over the engine hoping for the best, you know, and he's going, that's kind of where we are with antidepressants. We don't really know. We know that they sometimes work and they sometimes don't. And we don't really know why, you know, this is where we are. Um, but then I also, yeah, like you, I then go, oh, but it's, it's the brain and it's so complicated. And, and there are so many other factors that build into our mental health, you know. Yeah, so, absolutely. Y- yeah, it's, it's kind of, uh, and a lot of the times, you know, I, I you know, I, I spent so many times, still spend times wishing my mental health away, you know, but it does me no favors. You know, right, it does me no right. favors going, oh, maybe if I change this medication that I'll stop having suicidal thoughts or maybe if I do this thing, then it will stop because it, it, it doesn't. It's more of a case of if I was, weren't doing, if, so if I stopped doing exercise or eating right or taking medication, it would be even worse. You know, it's, it's kind of what would happen. Right, so it's right. kind of needing to view it in a slightly different way so all the things that I do do have an impact um it's just that that they don't take me to where I want to be so it's sort of accepting that that the level I'm going to be at is 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 a difficult one but um 
and then finding your best life within that, really, I guess. Yeah. I'm curious about, this may be a strange way to phrase it, but like your relationship to suicidal thoughts. Like, do you look back and say, oh, yeah, of course, you know, I had pills in my hand because that's what I do when I get really depressed. Um, Yeah. I'm curious what your thoughts are. For me, like my second depression, I became quite suicidal and and I was doing things that I look back on now and I'm like, holy crap, I can't believe I, yeah. I was doing something like that. I'm curious with you having so many times gone through it, how does that relate to you? I think, yeah, it's it's interesting. So I, I, I kind of, one of the things I find, you know, with the suicidal thoughts that is that I am in so much pain that, that it, it, that actually, having suicide as an option almost keeps me safe and it sounds a bit it sounds a bit odd but actually when i'm in so much pain i always know that suicide is an option and that kind of keeps me going mm. because it because it, it gives me an option out out of the pain so but yeah i look back on various different attempts of kind of you know so i have taken you know pills and alcohol before i've tried to walk in front of a truck before um, you know various things, and I am shocked by those things, and and it's right that I'm shocked by those things. At the same time, because I still experience suicidal thoughts, I also kind of go, yeah. But actually, when you're in the most you know pain that you can experience, then I also totally get why you want to get out of that pain. You know. Right. So, right. I, I yeah, I kind of I think both things really. I'm shocked by where. I, what I have done, nearly done, and and at the same time I totally understand it, you know. So I can look back and think, oh my God, what if that truck hadn't swerved, you know? That truck swerved so near me and didn't and didn't knock me down. Right. right. Or or if I had taken, you know, twenty more pills, you know, whatever. But because every few months I'll get some very serious suicidal thoughts, I also kind of know you know how acute that pain is mm-hmm. and you want to do anything to escape that pain it's right. about escaping from that escaping from that pain escaping from that pain um and i think that's one of the things that's really hard for people that haven't had suicidal thoughts or depression to understand is that you know why would you how could you be in so much pain that you would want to kill yourself it's like that doesn't make any sense because we're sort of we're built and wired in to survive you know it's like mm-hmm. i'll look at my cat for example and he will do everything that he can to get hold of food and keep his life going, you know. Right. Um, you know, I, I have a friend who has cancer and he's having cancer treatment. And he's doing everything that he can to stay alive. You know, he wants to do everything he can. And yet for me, sometimes it's the opposite. You know, it's like I want to escape the pain. I want to escape the pain. Right. And it's So, yeah, I am both shocked by, you know, the things that I've, you know, the ways that I've tried to kill myself. And also I totally understand the level of, you know, emotional, um, psychic pain that, 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 that people can be in and, and how you want to escape that yeah. in that moment. It's interesting how you say that because that definitely resonates with me as well. Like I, I'm shocked at what I was doing, um, and that I got to that point yet at the same time, I do understand like the amount of pain I was in and, and also the other piece that I feel is pretty strong with many people who become suicidal is just feeling like a burden, you know, feeling that you are causing so much pain and um, strife on Mm -hmm. others that Mm -hmm. everybody would be better off 
without you. And I certainly had those feelings as well. So I understand where it came from. And then the other piece of me too, I, I feel like knowing how depression works, knowing the lies that depression tells us and everything else. Mm. Like I, I've, I believe that some people talk about it it being a choice and, and I don't, I kind of disagree. I disagree. I not kind of, Mm. I disagree only because to make a choice, you have to be in the right frame of mind, like a, Mm. and it's an illness, right? And I strongly believe it impacts our, our sight, our, cognition our memory our focus and everything and you are not thinking logically so i definitely i knew at the time i was a burden but looking on it realistically in a health from a healthy place i was sick mm. i would have been a burden yeah. had i had cancer and i wouldn't have wanted to, to you know kill myself so it is a, a interesting interest interesting topic you get me a little nervous when you when you say that that suicide is a way almost of keeping you going because you know that there's a possible <laughs> way out. And I, I, I hope you come to a point to, to believe and realize that it is not a, a way out. Although if it's helpful for you in staying alive, then, then it's helpful for you. And I would never, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very weird way. It's a very odd relationship I have with suicide. You know, it, it, it kind of, um, it, it's, I find it much easier if, if, I have that as an option, you know, even when I'm well, I, I kind of think I have that as an option and, and it's kind of, and, and that's what keeps me safe, you know? So talking about it and having it, having it out there is, is what keeps me safe. So, um, and actually that's what keeps me not having attempts, you know, it's kind of like, um, it's, it's, it's very odd. Um, I think when you have kind of ongoing suicidal thoughts, your kind of relationship with sort of life and death changes a bit. Um, but certainly, yeah it, it's 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 an odd way to think about it but but sort of from um in my mind it, it kind of it kind of helps i can go oh well listen if it gets so bad that's an option but actually having that as an option is what keeps me going because i have an option so I, I don't know if i'm making any sense out but it kind of it kind of um it keeps me going it keeps me alive you know yeah. um it, it, it allows me to feel like I have some freedom and that, and that keeps me going because I know the suicidal thoughts are going to come back. So you have to find a way to, to manage that and a way to look at, look at it yep. in a way or in a survival way. Um, because at the time, you know, you're not going to feel like that. So you have to do all the work um, outside of that, you know, to look at it in a different way and to kind of come to terms with it and think about it in certain ways and, and kind of, you know, it's whatever works, isn't it? And that, and that, that kind of what, what is what works for me. <laughs> right. Right. Well, that's, and that's why I was saying I wouldn't, I shouldn't question it really, because if that's what keeps you going, then that's great. So I want to hear about the work you do because you have done incredible mm-hmm. things um, around your mental health advocacy and your writing, which is obviously a passion of yours and you are a yeah, published yeah. author. Um, I know it seems to me was, was one of your first kind of advocacy pieces, the, the website around the recovery letters. It was, yeah, absolutely was. So it was probably uh, when I was in hospital, actually, that, that I, I, I kept asking the psychiatrists and the doctors, you know, saying, oh, where can I go to to get sort of to hear about stories of people that manage their depression and, and stories of hope and recovery? And, you know, because no one would say to me, you know, you can recover from this, you can live your life. And, you know, they would never say that to me. No one would ever talk about hope. Um and and they were like, oh, we don't know of anything like that. And so so after I got out of hospital, I 
I wrote a letter, you know, I wrote a letter to other people that, that were, you know, suffering with depression. Um, and then I created a Twitter account and I got people to write letters, you know, um, about their experience of, of depression and how they managed it. And, and how, you know, even though those are, it can feel so acute that you might want to die, actually, you know, there is a life with or beyond whatever happens with your depression you can you can survive it and you can live with it and that was um, a big piece right to make sure that your letters actually ended with a hopeful bit yes that was really absolutely. important so, for you yeah absolutely crucial absolutely crucial that it that it ended with hope because because what i came to learn was that um you know depression steals hope so it, it steals hope away from you you know you talked about depression lying which is absolutely true it steals any hope you have away from you so so the letters had to end with hope because, you know, hope is the kind of antidote to depression. You know, yeah. it's, it's the one thing it takes away and it's the one thing that we need. So hope became this sort of running theme in, in me managing my depression. And I kind of wondered, you know, whether other people would like to hear about that as well, basically, which is when I started to get people to write letters and, and I set up the Recovery Letters website and, yeah, and it gained a lot of publicity here in the UK, and then, you know, eventually, kind of um, in various spots around the world, it came. You know, we got lots of uh, lots of visits, and more and more people wrote letters. And um, yeah, it was it's just been an extraordinary, powerful, humbling thing. Really, is that so? People write about you know what their depression was like, you know, and as you know, Al, and they write about how they live with their depression, and it, and it's. It's very much not saying, you know, I'm now fine. You know, I'm. It's you know, it's all going to be okay. It's saying, you know, sometimes it may not be all right. You know, and it's not as easy as it's just going to go away. You might, you know, find, need to find ways of managing it. But there is hope, and there is always hope. Um, depression is always going to try and steal it, um, but you have to kind of cling on to hope and find hope wherever you can because that's what sustains us through through depression. And and yeah, it's it's just an amazing project because it helps people that that read the letters, but also the people that write letters um, gain huge benefits from it as well. And I love that, you know, I love the fact that it helps, you know, both both sets of people. Um, so yeah, it was very, it turned really into my my passion really, and and then it got published as a book, and you know, has done really well. And and yeah, it's just been a a, won- a wonderful, wonderful thing. And and it was quite a process, it seemed like, to create a book from it, right? I mean, you had to go through and mm. check out all of these letters that you had received <laughs> and kind of yeah. Um, oh, yeah. read them all and decide which you were going to put in the book and how yeah. you were going to lay out the book. Talk about some of those yeah, pieces. Yeah. yeah, it was, you know, I, I wanted, so I, I work with um, a professor of psychology uh, uh, called Olive, uh, Professor Olivia Sagan in and she lives in Edinburgh, and we kind of work together because um, I, I I knew that I needed some help with this. So you know, um, it was good to work with somebody. But yeah, so we we wanted a book that had a range of different types of people, different ages, genders, people from different parts of the world, different types of depression. We wanted to kind of you know a huge range. You know, a few of them have come from the website, but only maybe two or three. And and most others we either approached because I like their writing, you know, um, or their work like yourself, or we put out a general call and people submitted. Um, and yeah, and and we we kind of went through all the letters and the ones that moved us and helped us and thought might help other people. 
were the ones that we selected and then along with the letter writers like yourself we we edited them to come to a place where we were both happy with with you know what was in the letters and and there's a range there's a huge range there's some are longer some are shorter some are only just a few lines but I knew that short pieces were really important because one of the things that had disappeared for me with my depression was reading so um, I wasn't able to read anything so I kept being offered you know loads of kind of massive books to read on on depression and I wasn't able to read them I was like I can't read this I can't I can't read a paragraph how am I supposed to read this so I wanted the letter format works really well because they're short they're all, all under sort of a thousand words and your attention span, your concentration is so affected with depression, as you know, that you have to have pieces that are short enough that you can read in one sitting. And it's not a book that you have to read from cover to cover. You know, you can just flick through and, and find a letter that, that sort of appeals to you. That was, you know, really important because I, you know, I, I wasn't able to read. You know, my reading is, is still affected. I'm reading much better than, than I was than that. And I can read, you know, novels now, not as many as I was before, but but it had to be, you know, something that didn't feel like homework. <laughs> you know, it didn't feel like, oh God, I'm gonna need to read this book. You know, it's literally you can just flick through and you can just arrive at a particular page. You know, I've got the book in my hand now, and I can look. I do, I do this myself. You know, the book is one of the ways that I manage my depression and my suicidal thoughts is the book. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I know obviously know it very well. So some, I can remember some lines or some paragraphs, but I have it. I have it all marked out, you know, so I have, you know, bookmarks and pieces of paper and, and the book is sort of drawn on and I'll circle things. And it's, it's one of the ways that I manage my depression is by hearing about others' experience. And then, you know, hearing them say, I know this pain, I know how awful it is too. I know you think you're the only one with this, you know, and hearing all those messages of how awful it has been for them and how they're now managing their life, that gives me hope, you know. Um, and, and I, th- it, I think, other yeah, absolutely gives hope to other people. And I think one of the things you said is brilliant that I hadn't really even thought about. But when I was in the midst of my depression, I, I couldn't focus at all. I remember thinking, I'm just going to read an enjoyable novel instead of one of my workbooks. <laughs> yeah. And and I couldn't focus on it. I, I couldn't get through any of it. And the same thing happened to me, which is so weird, even for TV. I wanted to sit on the couch and just watch TV. And yeah. I couldn't yeah. even follow the basic, simple show. Um, so Absolutely. my focus was really impacted. And by having a two-page letter, um, you know, something brief and short that you can flip through, you don't have to worry about a storyline. You don't have to worry about yep. the plot. So if you are somebody yep. who's in the midst of challenge, um, being challenged with your depression and you're in the midst of it, mm-hmm. This is a it's a fantastic book to help get through that. I think yeah, thank you. I, I, I it's 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 very true. You know, I, I would try and do the same, try and watch the TV or, you know, go to the cinema and it's like oh, I can't do this. I can't you know, I can't I can't concentrate. Nothing because there's so much going on in our heads that um, trying to get more information going in is is almost impossible. So you have to have small kind of chunks really, you have to do it in very small chunks. Um, and I think that's that's you know why the, one of the many reasons why the book is so important is that it's it gives you hope in small chunks and and and, it, and then there are so many other books on depression but but you know it feels like you have to you know go from page one to page four hundred and fifty you know right, in right. order to get your hands on depression and it's just like that's just not the case you know it's like what I know from 
feedback about the book and because I use the book as a tool for myself, you know, I know that there can be one paragraph that will suddenly hit me like a lightning bolt and I'll go, yes, that's, oh, that's what it's like, you know, somebody else gets what it's like and somebody else, you know, there's a paragraph in one of the letters that talks about hope and about, you know, strength and, you know, and it just, it stays with me and I use that, you know, but it has to be in small chunks because, our concentration is, is so badly affected with depression, as is memory, you know. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and those things aren't talked about enough. And I know that when I first had my depression, I would be going, but this is so weird. I thought, I thought depression was just about sadness and about, you know, but I can't, I can't really sit still and I can't, you know, I can't follow the plot of this crime program, like, you know, and not really understanding what's going on. And I couldn't remember stuff. And I thought I was getting dementia and all kinds of stuff. There were all kinds of sort of, sort of other um things that go on with depression that we don't talk about enough and and i think those of us that have depression know that you know you can't concentrate so you know i wanted to create a book from somebody with depression to other people with depression and, and because i have it i know that you know um had i written a 450 page book where you have to go from page one to page 450 you know very few people are going to read that book and get anything from it right. but but you can you can f- flick through and find a letter that's a few paragraphs yeah. and and find amazing messages of hope, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And then you have a new uh, book that you just put out, right? I think it was published in May, just May of yeah. this year. Um, yeah, just, and, just, just last year. Yeah. No, last, year, last month. Last month, yep. Last month published, and it's called How to Tell Depression to Piss Off, 40 Ways it's- to Get Your Life Back. It is. It is indeed. Yeah, it's um, it's it, it was really interesting. What I found was that I was using certain techniques to manage my depression, and I was using these skills and techniques over and over and over again. And I I kind of got to a place of going, oh, I wonder I wonder what it would be like to put these down on paper. And I started to put them down on paper, and um, I wrote them all down, and there were there were about forty, you know, um. And it's, it's similar to the recovery letters in that, again, it's small chunks. You don't have to read it from cover to cover. It's 40 different ways of managing depression, basically. Um, and it's ways that I use kind of all the time, the whole time I use these ways. And I jumble them up and use them at different times. Um, and, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of it because it's, it kind of it sort of solidifies all the things that I do to keep, keep going with my life, you know. Um, and to keep battling with depression and keep battling the lies and keep battling the intrusive thoughts and, you know, keep battling the suicidal thoughts. And, and I also kind of wanted it to be, to have some humor in it. So, um, one of the things that I use a lot to manage my depression is, is humor. Um, and sometimes really dark humor, but humor is really important to me. So I wanted to make the book as funny as I could basically. So it's kind of written with a kind of dark humor to it. Um, because also, if you're reading, you know, a massive book about depression, that can be that can be a tough thing to do. You know, right. I remember reading, you know, memoirs of, of depression and they were useful, but also it was tough. You know, it was tough read. So it, it's written well, hopefully with a lot of humor in it that um, that is really important with depression because um, we need to we need to balance things up. You know, balance is really important. So, yeah, it's it's 40 ways of you know, telling depression to piss off and and fighting and keep fighting for your life and knowing that it's an illness and finding ways to keep stabbing away at the illness. And I'm curious, when you were 
coming up with these 40 ways, were some of mm-hmm. these even uh, new to you in the fact that, oh, wow, this is actually one of the ways I manage my depression. I didn't even really realize <laughs> it. I should add this in there. Yeah. Once I started thinking about it, it was it was like, oh, God, I do do that, don't I? You know, so so I, I, I one of the things that I picture depression as a as a cuckoo, as a bird, and I picture it in my head and I keep punching it, you know, right. so it's like I keep punching this punching this cuckoo. So it's like, oh, my God, I keep doing that, you know, or, you know, when the voice of depression. So distinguishing between my voice and the, and the voice of depression is is one of the things that I do a lot. Um, is going, oh, okay, that, that, that thought pattern and those intrusive thoughts, that's the illness talking. That's not you, James, that's the illness. And I distinguish between the two and I start talking back to it. So I kept, yeah, I kept realizing that I kept doing all these things. You know, it's like, oh, God, I do that as well. And I use that skill and, and I do that thing. And, you know, and so, yeah, it was really interesting once I started to put it down that I, I came across stuff that I was using, but, but, you know, then was kind of consciously going, oh, I do that. And yeah, it was really interesting to sort of discover what I was doing to managing it. So I, you know, I knew I was doing these skills, but, but actually writing it down solidified it for me. Um, and also kind of, there are, there are, there are, you know, there are different ways in the book. So there are things that I use at different times, you know, so, um, you know, sometimes I will go on the attack with depression and I will treat it as a battle and I'll go, right, okay, you're not, you're not going to destroy my day, you know. And I, I will do the opposite of what depression is telling me to do, which is really difficult things to do. So depression is saying, you know, stay in bed, stay under the you know, under the covers, don't go out. And I'll get as much strength as I can and I'll, and I'll do the opposite of what it's telling me to do. Um, so I kept discovering ways like that of that would work really well, you know. So, yeah, writing them down was you know, I had them floating around in my head, but actually getting them down, I did discover, you know, other things that I was that I was using. It seems like, if not therapeutic, writing it for you must have definitely been very helpful. It, it was. It really was, actually. I think one of the things that I found is that although my reading has been massively affected, my, my writing hasn't. So, and I think that's about input versus output. So, you know, getting stuff in, like trying to follow the plot of... Um, murder she wrote i couldn't do that you know right, but right. i could I, I could you know get stuff out you know so my head wasn't able to contain the plot to murder she wrote but you know i could write stuff down because it's about stuff coming out rather than stuff going in yeah so it's as simple it was as simple as that really so yeah writing was the one thing that that kind of helped me a lot so yeah the book was 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 kind of really therapeutic for me and I, I mean i also hope really useful for other people but yeah it was it was a great great thing to do and um yeah i was kind of i, I pretty much i kind of had most of it written by the time i kind of got a, a, a sort of publishing contract which so i had to do a few you know, you know edits here and there and change it a little bit but but i had written it down almost as a tool for myself anyway Right. Um, and then and then gone. Oh, I wonder whether other people might be interested in this. So, um, awesome. yeah, I had used it as a tool for myself initially, anyway. And then and then, you know, got a got a publishing contract with it, and, and yeah, and it kind of went from there. Yeah. Well, congratulations on the publishing contract and and getting this book published. Just again, just a month ago, title of the book is How to Tell Depression to Piss Off, very British term, <laughs> and uh, forty ways to get your life back. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's incredible. It's got to be so helpful for people. So, um, first of all, uh, 
I'd love for you to be able to share with people where they can find the books, where they can find out more about you. And also, I just wanted, yeah. wanted to touch on also whether or not you're still doing other writing, because I believe you used to have a blog. I don't know if you're still blogging. Just curious about that. But but we definitely need to know where to find the books and more about you. Yeah. So, so yeah, the recovery letters is, is, will be, you can get that uh, in the US very easily. You know, that will be on uh, on Amazon, it will be on, you know, Barnes and Noble and, and other places very easy to get. Um, how's to tell depression to piss off? There's been a few problems because of the coronavirus. There's been various problems right. um, getting it getting it shipped over to the US and and getting you know sales in the US um, for that book. So at the moment, that's a bit more difficult to get um, to get hold of. Um, you can get it through eBay uh, actually, but yeah, because you know of what we're going through at the moment with the pandemic, um, things have got delayed and, and various stuff with the other book. Um, the, the website, the Recovery Letters website, is therecoveryletters.com. Um, and on there, there's about 100 letters from people with depression. And obviously, that's available 24-7. And, you know, and again, uh, just a huge variety of people, you know, writing about depression and writing about hope. My website is jameswithy.com. I'm also on Twitter, which is uh, James W. Withy. And the Recovery Letters have a Twitter account as well, which is which is Recovery Letters. So, yeah, if you Google, you'll you'll find me and you'll, you'll find the... Uh, You'll find the books and you'll find the uh, find the websites. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping that we'll get uh, the latest book out to the US. <laughs> you know, we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah, um, awesome. Yeah, well, I'll try it's been to... delayed a bit. Yeah, I will get all that information in the description of the show as well, so that people can find links and so forth. And um, thanks, Al. And I will make sure to to see if I can find it anywhere here in the states as well, because it's a book uh, that we need here in the US as much as in the UK. Um, thank you and uh are you are you still blogging just out of curiosity and and is that also on your website if you are yeah i'm not actually no no i'm not i i i, I was blogging for a while um um when i first got out of hospital i blogged a lot and okay. um yeah i did that a lot and that was really useful i do lots of different pieces of writing so sometimes i write you know short stories and bits and stuff like that but i don't sort of have an ongoing um, blog about depression. I was, I, I did it for a bit and then I was finding that, um, you know, I, I wasn't doing it one day and then I would give myself a hard time and, you know, I would kind of get, I was getting sort of too caught up in, in it. Um, but there are some fantastic blogs about, you know, about depression out there. Yeah. So I, I do writing sort of, sort of therapeutic writing for myself, but yeah, I don't have a blog going at the okay. moment. Um, but yeah, there are some amazing blogs out there. So, okay. yeah. Well, Awesome. One more plug for your books, uh, The Recovery Letters. It's a website and a book. And the new book, How to Tell Depression to Piss Off. Um, <laughs> so, James, before we wrap up, I'd love to hear yeah. what is one piece of advice, the biggest piece of advice you would give to somebody who might be listening to the show right now in a place where they're struggling with depression? Do you know, I would say, you know, it, it's going to get better. It will get better. It, it, it may not go altogether, but you're not going to be in the same place of pain forever. And I think that message is really important, which is that, you know, stuff changes. You know, we know stuff changes all the time and change is constant. And the change, even though depression is telling you that it's never going to get better and it's never going to go away, it's lying to you and it will change and you won't be in so much pain all the time. Yeah. And, you know, 
you know, me and you, we get that pain. So if, if you're thinking no one else gets this pain and no one else, you know, knows how much pain I'm in and how excruciating it is, it's like we really do know. We know how much pain, that, what it's like and what it feels like. But I'm telling you, it's not always going to feel like that, you know, and hold on because it's not always going to feel like that. Yeah, that's an awesome message, a message of hope, which is so, so important to get through the depression. Absolutely. So, so James, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for putting two incredible books out into the world that are very much needed and all of the advocacy work you do around mental health. And I especially want to take you, uh, thank you for taking so much time uh, to be on the Depression Files. I really appreciate it, and it's I've loved been it. fantastic. Thank you, Al. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, make sure you stay healthy. Thank you. I will do. You too. Thank you for listening to the Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.